0: hey what's up everybody and welcome back to that triathlon show the podcast presented by ScientificTriathlon.com. i'm your host michael and this episode is q and a number 109 before we get into today's questions big thanks to our sponsors first we have precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com if you are a newer listener to the podcast and you haven't heard uh, the previous appearances of uh, andy blow who is the founder of precision hydration uh, on the that, that triathlon show then i highly recommend you go to scientifictriathlon.com and type in andy blow in the search bar and you'll get his episodes where he discusses a number of things related to hydration and uh, nutrition including how it can help in particular in longer and hotter races uh, with general performance but also things like cramping and nausea and uh, so on and so forth Really good episodes, all of them. So definitely check them out. And they are highly educational when it comes to uh, designing your own race hydration and nutrition plans. You can buy electrolyte products on precisionhydration.com with uh, a 15% discount code that is DETTRIAFLONSHOW15. That and you can get a free online sweat test uh, on the tab that says Free Hydration Plan that will help you get your hydration right for your next race. And a big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka started out with the mission of designing the world's fastest wetsuit, and uh, with uh, having swum in the Maverick X2, the new flagship model, I can attest to the fact that it is ridiculously fast. Obviously, I haven't tested all the wetsuits in the world, so I shouldn't claim whether it's the fastest or not. But I do think that it's really, really fast. It's definitely a lot faster than all other wetsuits I have tried, and even faster than the previous Roka wetsuits, the the Roka Maverick X. Uh, so actually, in my coaching practice with athletes that i coach that have uh, significant performance goals where every half a minute counts uh, and the swim can be a determining factor for how well you do in races Uh, i have really recommended them to get their hands on and trying roca maverick x2 because it can be the difference between achieving your triathlon goals or not especially when when the margins are uh, are small and you need to make every single second count uh, roca also produce really really great tri suits swimskins goggles high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses so check them out on roca.com and get 20% off your entire roca order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into today's questions the first one is from derek in ontario canada who writes hi michael first of all thanks for answering some of my previous questions TTS is my go-to podcast for my long run and commutes, back when I actually had to leave home for work. I have a couple of questions related to training and racing paces in running. One, I've done some focused work on both my 5k and 10k race paces. Back in March of 2020, I ran my first sub-20 minute 5k and then got down just under 19 minutes in a virtual race in April After doing your COVID-19 training plan I decided to focus on my running again and did a 10k training plan which culminated in a huge 10k pb where I went sub 40 minutes. I stumbled across some online race pace charts charts which estimate other race pace distances uh, based on my 5k and or 10k times. These charts would suggest that I should be able to run a half marathon at a bit over four minutes per kilometer and a marathon at around 4 minutes 20 seconds per kilometer these paces seem way faster uh, than i think i could run over those distances for context my half marathon pb is just under five minutes per kilometer in pace do you think it's reasonable that if i focused on for example the half marathon distance that i could that i could really get my personal best down to around the range the chart suggests and then there's a question two and then there's a thanks in advance if you choose to answer these questions from Derek I'm going to answer question one here first and then read question two so I'm not sure exactly which charts you've looked at uh, but uh, I'm going to say that my recommended charts slash calculators are the ones from Greg Macmillan on macmillanrunning.com and the one from Jack Daniels on runsmartproject.com those are very similar they give very similar results in terms of equivalent uh, race uh, paces and race results Uh, the jack daniels calculator maybe lacks some of the functionality uh, which is why i generally use macmillan as my first go-to when it comes to equivalent race paces but i always try to cross reference with jack daniels or i always do uh, just to make sure that they seem to indicate a similar equivalent race pace I will link to both of these in the show notes. But to your question, your half marathon PB is uh, just under five minutes per kilometer or eight minutes per mile, whereas the tables—and again, I'm looking here at the Macmillan and uh, Jack Daniels tables, uh, the Macmillans primarily—and I plugged in an 1856 5K, as you said that you went just sub 19, so 1856, which which is 3:47 per kilometer or um, I have it somewhere down the notes for miles, 6.05 for miles, uh, for mile pails, pace, that is. So according to, to that result, uh, an estimated 18.56 for the 5K, the Macmillan table says that you should be running 4.09 per kilometer for half marathon, or which is 6.42 per mile. The first thing to consider here when it comes to whether this is realistic or not is that remember that these equivalent paces are based on, Your recent PBs, the 5K in this example. And uh, the question is, how much fitter are you now compared to when you were running your half marathon PB? If your half marathon PB is, let's say, a year old or more, or you have simply been progressing a lot since you set that for one reason or another, then it is completely logical that there is a big discrepancy between the suggested equivalent half marathon time, uh, which for you now is 4 minutes 12 per kilometer. And uh, what you have done in the past, just under five minutes per kilometer, simply because your fitness is at another level. So to directly answer your question, whether it's reasonable that if you focused on the half-marathon distance, that you could get your PB down to around the range the chart suggests, my answer is, yes, it is absolutely possible. Obviously, I don't know exactly which charts you've been looking at, but you said that it's uh, just above four minutes per kilometer. Macmillan says uh, four minutes. What did I say? Four minutes, 12 seconds per kilometer, I think. So, so yes, uh, and it, it is very reasonable. Jack Daniels has a very similar result. I use both of these uh, calculators in my coaching practice to assess what uh, race results might be race paces might be realistic for a different distance for my athletes a lot i have found them to be uh, usually very very accurate a key thing to remember for you and for everybody listening though is what you already mentioned in your question in fact you say that if i focus on for example the half marathon distance and that is the key because you really need to do that specific work that focused work for these equivalent race paces to uh, be accurate What the charts are specifically saying is that since if you can run an 1856 5k after some specific focus on the 5k distance, that is the equivalent fitness level of running a 127 something half marathon after focusing specifically on the half marathon for a while. So the 127 there would be the 4 minute 12 per kilometer half marathon pace or 642 per mile. So, of course, there is uh, a high overlap between the training you would do for a 5k and a half marathon because both of those are highly aerobic disciplines. But uh, specificity is important no matter what event you're training for. Uh, So if you train yourself to run an 1856 5k, we can say that you are as good a runner as a 127 something half marathoner, but it doesn't mean that you can right now go and run a 127 half marathon you probably cannot unless you have done that specific training and this also applies in reverse by the way so that 127 half marathoner maybe might not be able to do the 1856 5k so it applies from longer distances to shorter but i should say that it becomes more important when going from shorter distances to longer when you really have to build up that fatigue resistance and being able to to withstand the long kilometers of the race so it's more likely that actually that the 127 half marathoner can go out and do an 1856 5k without specific training than that the 1856 5k runner can go and do a 127 half marathon without specific training if that makes sense this doesn't mean that you have to go and do 12 weeks or 16 weeks of specific training uh, it's obviously how long you need to do specific training depends a lot on the distance and the history of the athlete But generally speaking, the shorter the distance, the shorter the period of specific preparation needs to be, at least in my uh, personal opinion. Uh, Because marathon stamina, for example, is something that you need to build for a longer time than the maximum aerobic velocity type of training required to run a fast 5K or your best potential 5K. So for a 5K, the specific training period might be as short as three, maybe four weeks. That would be more than sufficient. But for half marathon, 46 weeks would be required, I would think. And for the marathon, six to eight weeks of specific training is what I think would be required to to get to that equivalent time. Uh, Although the marathon probably is the one of these distances where having even a bit more time than that wouldn't be a bad thing, even though I think it would be possible to get to that equivalent time within, within six to eight weeks for sure. So to summarize if you use a good calculator or chart such as the Macmillan or Jack Daniels ones and you still do a bit of specific training which depends on the race distance then yes you can definitely get your pb down to the ranges suggested by those charts. Now question number two from Derek uh, reads various race slash training pace charts tells me that my training paces should be something like 457 per kilometer for easy runs 407 per kilometer for tempo runs sub 330 for speed work and 457 to 536 per kilometer for long runs these all seem to make sense and fit in with my recent training other than i tend to run my easy runs and tempo runs just a little slower than those recommended paces i'm trying to accurately determine my threshold pace so that i can set it in training peaks which I started using when I did your COVID 19 plan and have continued using. Other than doing a one hour best effort, do you have a recommendation for determining your threshold pace based on a 10K race or some other kind of workout? I'm also curious which auto calculation method you recommend using in training peaks to determine pace zones. All right, so to get to this question, I will again use the guesstimate that uh, you completed your 5k in 18 minutes, 56 seconds. So that 347 per kilometer or 605 per mile pace as a baseline for the answer. And uh, if we plug that into the Macmillan calculator, we get a number of different pace ranges for different types of runs. And I'm just going to not list the entire range here, but list the midpoint of each range for simplicity. Uh, but do note that they are ranges and not discrete points. So first, uh, Macmillan says recovery jogs would be 520 per kilometer or 834 per uh, mile. Long runs would be 452 per kilometer or 749 per mile. Easy runs, which by the way, I don't think this is a good term for uh, that Macmillan uses for what I would call an endurance run, essentially a zone two run in a five zone system. Uh, they would be 4.45 or 7.30 per kilometer or 7.38 per mile tempo runs which Macmillan calls steady state runs would be 4.12 or per, per kilometer or 6.45 per mile threshold runs which Macmillan calls tempo runs so be aware of that would be 4.01 per kilometer or 6.27 per mile and speed work anywhere between 3.30 and 3.50 per kilometer or 5.37 to 6.10 per mile depending on how long the intervals are without listing all of the exact paces that the jack daniels calculator would give you it is quite similar but slightly lower across the board slightly slower paces that is and in particular for the low intensity runs the difference is uh, reasonably significant actually in that jack daniels uh, would have you run at 508 or so for compared to the 445 for the endurance runs this slower endurance run pace fits with what you're already doing anyway Uh, just naturally and uh, i would agree also just looking at the your times and that yeah it's a much better pace than the 445 macmillan suggests for your easy runs or endurance runs especially considering that the macmillan paces are pushing the limits a bit anyway in terms of the Tempo work, the threshold work, and the high intensity running. I think that those paces are fine, but they're on the high end of what I would recommend. So, so that's why I think that it's really important to if you're pushing the envelope in all of your hard workouts, that the balance of low intensity training needs to be low intensity enough. And I don't think Macmillan quite hits the mark there, but that too is a bit too high. Jack Daniels hits the mark there, in my opinion. So, uh, and that fits with what you're already doing, as as I said. So, so, having examined these how these two calculators differ in terms of training paces, I'd suggest that uh, I would rely on uh, Jack Daniels uh, above Macmillan. even though the Daniels calculator has its limitations, for example, it only uh, suggests a target pace, a discrete point, not a target pace range. You say that most of the paces you get from your chart that you're looking at, are what you've already been doing, except the easy runs and the tempo runs that you do a bit slower than 4.57 and 4.07, respectively. And uh, I think that what you're doing naturally is correct in both of those instances based on your 5K and 10K times. I would add 10 to 15 seconds per kilometer to those paces, uh, depending a bit on what the exact workout is. But certainly for the tempo run, I think that there's no need to run any faster than 4.15 per kilometer. Uh, Otherwise, it will essentially be a threshold run and you will tire more quickly than than you should. As for your question on how to estimate your threshold pace without actually doing a one-hour test, both the Macmillan and Daniels calculators will do this for you when you plug in any race result. So for example, sticking to the example of using 18.56 for uh, the 5K, then uh, Macmillan would uh, give, and the Daniels would both give you a threshold that is 403 per kilometer. And in my coaching practice, I also prefer to use races to estimate uh, your threshold rather than time trials. But if there are no races available, I'd use a 20 minute time trial and take 94% of your 20 minute pace as your threshold pace. So let's just assume for a moment here that you can hold that same 347 per kilometer or 605 per mile for one minute longer than it took you to run five kilometers. So essentially you're running 347 average for 20 minutes. That would give you a threshold of 401 if we take 94% of that. So that too falls in the same range as the very narrow range as Macmillan and Daniels. Now, I don't know what your exact 5k time was, so do confirm with your exact time. But what I would do since you have recently done that and achieved a personal best, I just plug that 5k time in into one or both of the Macmillan and Daniels calculators and see what you get and use that as my threshold. And you can go through the same procedure for the 10k time, but unless it was in the very low 39s, then I think that your 5k time is the more competitive one and is the one you should use for your threshold estimate. As for general recommendations for your running threshold most of my advanced athletes uh, do one or less run tests per year or in terms of time trials at least and uh, we generally use a couple of 5k or 10k runs in the early part of the year to get an up-to-date estimate of their threshold when they are improving through that part of the year and then through race season uh, we don't really need to change their estimated threshold much. Some of my athletes uh, of course use lactate testing or similar and I do think that some sort of metabolic testing is uh, the best option uh, if you can do that but uh, keep in mind that you need to have a good test provider to do it. Unfortunately and this is uh, a really big gripe of mine not all of them are great and uh, not all of them use appropriate protocols so from some of them you can get information that really isn't that useful. For beginner to intermediate athletes, uh, I also use races uh, as much as I can rather than time trials. But uh, if there are no races available and I want to get updated threshold estimate for them, then I think it's uh, less costly for uh, beginner and intermediate runners to do a solo 20-minute TT or a solo 5K and simply use that 94% that I tend to use or in the case of a 5K, simply look at the Macmillan and Daniels calculators and take the threshold estimate from there. The more advanced you get, the more you will also learn to feel what uh, what's the threshold for you and when you're going above it in particular. So I might prescribe a workout where I say to go and do three by ten minutes at threshold pace, and then I give a target pace range. So for example, I write 350 to 4. Oh, oh, uh, per kilometer but sometimes if it's been a while since the athlete has done a test or has done a race or a time trial they will just know based on the feel on the day that their threshold pace is actually 345 and it feels sustainable and they go out and run that and hold that for the entire workout for the three by 10 minutes and that's absolutely fine then if their comments and their RPE rating is in line with what I would expect, this is actually great information for me that their threshold pace may have improved and may now be around 3.45 per kilometer uh, rather than uh, what I had before, whatever it was. In particular, if this happens on several occasions. As for which auto calculation for pace zones I would recommend in training peaks, what Derek is referring to here is that in training peaks, you can uh, put in your threshold pace and then you can just select from a drop down list of, for example, Joe Field pace zones, 80 20 pace zones, uh, and so on and so forth. And it will automatically, based on whatever system is used, uh, calculate a set of zones. So for example, zone one, it would say is from X to Y and, and so on in terms of pace. Uh, to be honest, uh, it's not so much about what system of training zones you use, but it's about how how you use them, how effectively you use them. So it really doesn't matter that much what system of zones you use. Uh, but the, the purpose of zones really is to help us communicate about training intensities and also to be able to quickly and easily grasp and understand what a workout was like and uh, so of course you do want to use a system that that you feel works for you but that's not to say that one system is better than the other Uh, individual preference really comes plays into this a lot personally i have found that none of the pre-built zones in training peaks fit my needs perfectly so i created my own uh, system that you can also use because it's publicly available in a google sheet which i'll link to in the show notes and I prefer to use six zones for speed and power, uh, but I use five zones for heart rate, uh, just uh, to note that. And that is really the main difference between my system and the ones in Training Peaks, because many of the systems in Training Peaks, like Joe Friel and the 8020 Endurance, have more than six zones. Uh, so uh, basically, yeah, I don't find that necessary, uh, but I do find six zones kind of, yeah, I like to have that. So the five zone systems for pace i don't find quite adequate because there will always be at least two zones that overlap where i wouldn't want them to to overlap Uh, there are also of course differences in where the demarcation points between zones are so what percentage of threshold is your zone two and zone three border will differ between different systems uh, again, I'm not saying that any one system is better than another, but I built the system that works for my coaching model and that I think works best for my coaching model, and uh, and that means that I have uh, put the uh, these percentages of threshold accordingly. So I would say you can use my system if you if you want to do that, just calculate your zones in the spreadsheet and manually add them into Training Peaks. Uh, but uh, if you want to, me to name the one system that is pre built in Training Peaks that I like the best, then I'd have to say it is the Joe Friel one. It is, in fact, very similar in, to my system in terms of what percentages of threshold are used as uh, demarcation points between zones. My My main gripe right with it really and it's a minor one is that it has split what i would call zone four sort of my threshold zone into what joe friel calls zone four and zone 5a and then he also has zone 5b and zone 5c and i just think that that uh, over complicates communication around the zones a little bit so i prefer to have zone 4 uh, which is he's uh, zone 4 and zone 5 and i have zone 5 which is he which is joe friel's zone 5b and i have zone 6 which is joe friel's zone 5c uh and uh yeah uh, that's that's really it so joe feels is a good one you i don't think you can go wrong with it uh, and uh yeah good question derek so thank you for that and i hope this helps the next question is from john from switzerland who writes dear michael first the accolades great podcast always insightful and with lots of rich content keep it up here is my question many coaches swear by rpe rating of perceived exertion as a performance metric Training Peaks asks you to rate every workout uh, based on RPE, but I find that the definition of RPE is not always clear. At the end of a workout which has multiple segments of varying intensities, to attach an aggregate number of for RPE from 1 to 10 to that workout seems to me to be a difficult and in many cases largely largely pointless exercise. Do we mean perceived effort at the hardest part of the workout, or the average of the hard intervals? or a blended value across all segments or something else entirely? And is there a consensus on how this value is set other than by reference to the Borg scale? Do we really need 10, let alone 20 levels of RPE and thus having so many levels create unhelpful noise in the system? Perhaps defining and using a score for a workout that is relative to the normal or expected intensity for that workout would be more useful. So simply minus 2... Equals easier, minus one equals somewhat easier, zero equals as expected, plus one equals somewhat harder, and plus two equals harder. There would be little value in simply saying, okay, there was an RPE of eight out of 10 for the workout, but perhaps more value in saying, that was clearly harder than last time, so definitely a plus two today. This measure would be more precise information for the coach, even if self coached, and describes the overall effort associated with overcoming the current level of fatigue while the intensity part of the workout is best described by an objective measure like training stress score. Thanks for your thoughts on RPE and how it can best be defined and used. All right, John, thank you for the question. It's a really great one and I'm happy to share my thoughts on it. First, uh, it's not that I'm trying to promote training peaks by any means, but the metric you're describing actually already exists within training peaks as well. Uh, So it sounds like you're using it, so uh, this will be very clear for you in a moment. But for listeners that may not use Training Peak, uh, just to reiterate a bit, uh, as John says, you are asked to rate each workout on a rating of perceived exertion scale from 1 to 10 after the fact, but you are also asked to associate a smiley face to that workout. These smiley faces can be categorized as neutral, happier, happiest, and sadder, saddest. And the rating here is the answer to the question, how did you feel today? This rating is separate from the RPE or session RPE, which is rated on a scale from one to 10. Uh, And uh, what this measure is called is simply feeling uh, within training peaks. And the neutral phase here corresponds to feeling normal or uh, put in other words, performing as expected in the workout. Uh, equally the happier and happiest correspond to feeling a bit or a lot better than normal and or performing unexpectedly well and vice versa for the sad faces and i agree with john i think this is a super useful metric uh, i'm not sure if it's quite as use- useful as rpe but it's not far behind and i definitely feel both are among the most important metrics and data points that we collect of everything so that summarizes, I guess, one part of your question. Yes, it makes a lot of sense to define a score that is relative to how the workout was expected to feel or how you expected to perform in it. And that is fortunately already being done in Training Peaks, which I really, really like. And as a side note, when you sync your Training Peaks data into WKO for those that are using WKO, uh, then these feeling values they transfer not as smiley faces but as numerical values so they can look up averages and uh, and look at the trends of the data and so on then you're saying that uh, this metric this feeling metric describes the overall effort associated with overcoming the current level of fatigue which i agree with uh, but there are also many other factors that go into it for example nutrition and hydration status mental state environmental conditions and so on so All else being equal, for example, a workout in in a really hot environment will feel a lot harder than, than in a temperate environment. But you're definitely right that overcoming fatigue and the fatigue status or freshness status of the athlete is a very important factor in this metric. But then you say that the intensity part of the workout is best described by an objective measure like training stress score, TSS. And this I don't completely agree with uh, in fact, in the relatively recent interview that I did with uh, Théun Van Erp, we discussed his research comparing different training load measures. And they found that using session RPE and training stress score are actually very, very similar. So you cannot say that one is better than, than the other. And in fact, it would be pretty easy to to design a workout with very low TSS, relatively speaking, but very high RPE, where the workout is actually very, very hard. Uh, so simply the way you would do this is to use super low recovery intensities uh, between short but really really hard intense efforts and that relatively low intensity or average low intensity drags tss down but rpe will be a much better representation because you're doing a lot of hard work there so for example let's say I design a workout that is 20 times one minute all out efforts with five minute recoveries at 30% FTP. That would be an example of that. RPE would be super high. The load would be very high because you're doing 20 minutes of total work at an all out uh, intensity, essentially. Uh, but TSS might still not be comparatively, TSS will be low so so you can definitely make arguments for that tss is not always super accurate of course this is a bit of a uh, made-up example and uh, most workouts don't don't really look like that but but the point is uh, there is not it's not really there's no argument for saying that one is better than the other both complement each other and both can be important but uh, Again, going back to the discussion with tone uh, it has been validated scientifically that RPE is in fact an, as, a re- as reliable a metric for training load as TSS. Uh, also, keep in mind that uh, one issue with TSS that RPE doesn't have is that TSS isn't perfectly accurate, even though you say it's objective. But it is really relying on the fact that you get good, clean data from every workout, which is not always true. And also, it's relying on the fact that you're keeping a constantly up-to-date FTP, which is kind of hard to do, not not least because of the fact that FTP can change by a significant amount just on a day-to-day basis based on your fatigue status. So in that sense, RPE might be the better measure on, on those days when you are quite fatigued. So, during periods of the year, especially when you're clearly improving your fitness, let's say the two or three months after getting back from your season break and starting to work on improving your fitness again, then TSS can be quite poorly calibrated when you have maybe when you are some a few weeks away from your latest test and if you haven't manually updated it. Of course, you can do that, but All this to say that TSS isn't perfect and even though it's objective it relies on several other factors. RPE is on the other hand is always perfectly calibrated if you stick to your own personal way of rating it even though it might not be perfectly calibrated compared to another athletes but it doesn't need to be it only needs to be calibrated to yourself. You make a point around the definition of RPE being unclear and uh, that is uh, I can't argue with that It, It. can be quite unclear yes and there are many different definitions which doesn't really help but the important thing is that as an athlete coached or self-coached it really doesn't matter how you think about it how you define it as long as you are more or less consistent in how you rate your rpe because what you are using it for is not to benchmark against other athletes or to reference it against any pre-existing models or pre-existing values uh, benchmarks from from scientific data or anything you're just using it to gain insights into your own training and i would say that among the athletes that i coach i think that there is without me having really done much at all in terms of educating using the session rpe There really are great similarities in how sessions are rated from one athlete to another. The differences that exist are plus minus one point, I would say, generally speaking. Definitely very rarely you see plus minus two, uh, unless, of course, it's an athlete that's having a really, really great day or a really rough day, then the RPE can be much lower or higher. But on a normal day, then the differences for the same workout between different athletes tend to be plus minus one point. Even so uh, with a plus minus one point difference in RPE, it really is all a matter of getting to know the individual athlete and using the RPE for that individual and not for the the group average so to say I have some athletes where if they do a workout that is a nine that they rate as a nine out of ten on the RPE scale, I know that that was an effort that will have taken a lot out of them and I will make some serious consideration or whether i'll do any adjustments to their training accordingly but with other athletes i know that a nine was still a seriously hard effort but something they'll definitely bounce back from the next day so no action needed other than keep monitoring How I would recommend using session RPE is would be as follows, and uh, I should warn you that this is not the same as in the scientific literature. It's just what I, from a coaching perspective, found seems to work well for my athletes, and I would say that it's not the hardest RP achieved in the workouts or even the average across the intervals, uh, although that would probably get you to a similar point. But really, it is your third suggestion of a blended value across all segments. But uh, keep in mind that this does not mean that just because a wor- workout has an easy warm-up, it cannot be a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. It absolutely can because essentially you're just weighing the hard parts of the workout heavier than the easy parts if you want to think of it that way but but you don't have to think about it in that complex way i'm not saying that you have to this is not really a complicated matter but i'll get to it in in a little bit but the way i would consider session rpe is that it's almost like a reserve capacity so how much harder could you have gone or for how much longer could you have gone on at the same power or pace let's take an example if you did three times 20 minute intervals on the bike at 250 watts and it was pretty tough but you think you could have done 265 watts for three by 20 minutes if you really went all out then you had essentially a reserve capacity of 15 watts for one hour's worth of hard work and again there's no specific way of converting Anything like that, any data like that to to the RPE to session RPE, because it is subjective. But the point is that it really is a comparison. You're comparing the workout to how hard you could possibly have gone if it was an all out effort. So three times twenty minutes at 265 watts would in this example have been an all out effort, a ten out of ten. Then maybe 250 watts for the same workout is a seven and a half or an eight out of ten. And you would find the 9 out of 10 would be somewhere in between the 250 and the 265 watts. Again, there's no specific number of watts you drop with each RPE point. This is just where it's important to remember that it's your subjective rating. And if you feel that it was closer to moderate than to max, then maybe it was a 7. And if you feel that, oh boy, that wasn't far away from my best, then maybe it was an 8 or even a 9 perhaps. It could be a 9. But uh, the the advice that I'll leave you with here is uh, what Theon van Erp advised when I interviewed him: don't think too much, just write down the first number that comes to mind. Really, a couple of other points that I want to make here is that since I use Training Peaks as my coaching platform and uh, they have added some labels to their one to ten RPE scale already, I accept those labels, those anchor points, so they call one out of ten very easy i kind of read this as very 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 easy actually and i don't expect and don't really want to see ones for from my athletes except for some exceptional circumstances Uh, so so it's but yeah it's an anchor point at the super super easy side of things low intensity workouts for me are more in the realm of three to five five is uh is the most common Uh, some twos for pure recovery workouts really short five 5 is the anchor point that training point training peaks gives for moderate. Uh, so they label a 5 as moderate. And for example, a run or ride where a fairly substantial amount of time is spent at or around the aerobic threshold, so the borderline between zone 2 and zone 3 in a 5-zone system that would often be rated as a five. For example, a workout like a 90-minute run with 60 minutes at LT1 uh, would probably be rated as a five by by most athletes. And 10 is the anchor point for all out. Uh, Obviously, this I already described. I interpret this as no reserve capacity left at all. And this can be true even for something like, let's say you do a three-minute time trial on the bike where you absolutely smash yourself to pieces and almost tear the crank off the bike then even though it's just three minutes and with some good recovery after that effort you could come back and do maybe even another set of intervals but you you did absolutely trash yourself in that effort and you had no reserve capacity left at all so i think that that could be categorized as a 10 even though it's only three super hard minutes as part of maybe a 45 minute one hour workout the difference between this uh, scale, which is goes from one, very, very easy, three, five, moderate, and 10, uh, all out, and the uh, what's used in scientific literature is quite significant, because in the scientific literature, as you allude to, what's often used for session RPE is the modified 10-point Borg scale, where zero means rest, one means very, very easy, two means easy, three means moderate, four means somewhat hard, five means hard seven means very hard and six is between hard and very hard 10 means maximal and eight and nine is between very hard and maximal and i have to say i like what training peaks has done here because i think that a more linear scale from very easy to all out is more intuitive and athletes are better at being consistent in their ratings when they're using that sort of scale but uh, that's just to give you an idea of how that differs from what's used in the scientific literature. Then to address the point that you make of, does it have to be as granular as 1 to 10? Maybe not. I think that 1 to 5 would probably be enough. But but I also don't think that 10 is so too much. I don't think it's too granular and creates a lot of extra noise. I, I wouldn't say think that that is the case. So to summarize my thoughts on this topic, I would say... I'm a fan of both session RPE, which is a blended value across the entire workout and summarized into a score between a subjective score between 1 to 10 based on how much reserve capacity you had, how much harder you could possibly have gone, where 1 is super duper easy peasy, 10 is absolutely all out, smashed it to pieces, and 5 is moderate. I'm also a fan of the relative feeling rating. So, how did you feel and perform compared to the expected? which training peaks implements in their smiley faces. Both Session RPE and this feeling are very important metrics for me to look at as a coach. The important thing is that you as an individual athlete rate your Session RPE consistently. It doesn't have to match up with how research studies implement RPE scales and it doesn't have to match up with how other athletes use it. You also don't need to and should not overthink it. As in the grand scheme of things, the difference between a 7 and an 8 won't matter much, if at all. The difference between a 4 and an 8 does matter, but as long, again, as you're consistent, then everything is good. RPE is a subjective metric, but it's still a great and validated measure of training load. And it's a great measure of internal strain, which TSS is not. TSS is external stress. It's not internal strain. And finally, In my coaching, when it comes to measuring stress, strain, and load metrics, the first one that I look at, the most important one in the hierarchy, is hours of training, training volume. The second layer of the hierarchy is looking at kilojoules, heart rate, session RPE, and relative feeling. And the third order of priority would be TSS and intensity factor. And this essentially means that I am the most likely to base a decision off of something I see in the training hours second most likely to base a decision off of rpe feeling and kilojoules and heart rate and third most likely to take action on something i see in the tss or intensity factor so that's just me it's i'm not saying that that's the right way the one and only way to do things absolutely not but i do think that rpe has really really great value and uh, it's because it's it's a kind of a foolproof metric like really when you are consistent in your rating of it then uh, you can't really go wrong with it it doesn't have any equipment failures it's no calibration issues uh, whatsoever so that's that's basically why i think that it's such a useful tool thank you john for your question and that's it for today keep sending in questions for future q and a's to michael at scientifictraflon.com and that's michael with a k You can find all the links and resources for this Q&A in the episode description, including the Macmillan and Jack Daniels uh, running calculators, my Google Sheet training zones calculator, and uh, a couple of uh, links for the RPE discussion, including a link to the episode that I did with Thelen van Erp. You can find this Q&A and all previous Q&As on scientifictraflon.com. and if you are a long-time listener of the podcast and you enjoy it it would be really fantastic if you could leave a rating and a review for it. Also I have some exciting news coming up soon there will be a scientific triathlon training camp in 2021 and we will very soon open up a limited number of slots for podcast listeners so stay tuned for that I believe that there will be an announcement on next week's Q&A. And you can also go to scientifictravelon.com and sign up for our newsletter to get updates about it when uh, when we make that announcement towards the end of October or the very early part of November. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your order with the promo code that 15 and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com check out their wetsuits trisuits swimskins goggles and high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon